Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So Acts 4, 1 to 24. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the ah, Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in, in Jerusalem. Anas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we, if we are being called to account today for the, an act of kindness shown to a man, who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind, by which we we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the men who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and confront together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because of all the people who were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Thanks, Ola. Uh, Great. Nice to be here. So we're in a short series uh, looking at 2020 vision. What is our vision? Uh, How can we make a positive difference on our city today? as the early church in the book of Acts made a positive or certainly an impact on the, city, the cities that they lived in in their day. And so last week we thought about what kind of church could we be. We kicked off the series, Acts chapter 2. Today we're looking at what kind of disciples could we make. 
Acts 4, and then next week, what kind of leaders could we have? Acts chapter 6. And so we're looking at the early church for our inspiration. Now, Jesus spent the most of his time on earth, I don't know if you've thought about this, gathering and training a few disciples. That's what he spent most of his time doing. And then he said to these disciples, after he spent so much time with them, now you go, the Great Commission, and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus wanted disciple-making disciples. And those first disciples were obedient. They went on and made disciples, who made disciples, who made disciples. And 2,000 years later, there are disciples in this room because of the impact they have. So what were these first disciples like? What was the fruit of their life? What marked them out? What were they like and why? And what can we learn from them? Well, one of the ways you can learn about someone is by what their enemies say about them. We've just had a campaign here, and obviously, you know, you've got political enemies, and people can say all kinds of terrible things that aren't true because they want to pull people down. But when your enemies, imagine it in the political scenario we've just had here, were to say something really good about the opposing party, you know because your enemy is saying it, it must be true. When the enemy gives you praise, that praise must be true. What is the praise? What is the testimony? What did the enemies of the early Christians say about them? Look at verse 13. This is the rulers and authorities who are really annoyed at the early church. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So this is the story. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple in Jerusalem and they heal a man who's been a cripple for 40 years. This then kicks off a need for an explanation. Like, how did this happen? Someone just got healed who's been a cripple for 40 years and they proclaim that in Jesus' name, Jesus is the source of power and they start proclaiming in Jesus the message of the gospel about his death and resurrection and salvation for all. And so then you see in verse 2 that this caused quite a stir. They were greatly disturbed by this as the apostles just went and started telling everyone how amazing Jesus was. And in verse 4 it says they got so annoyed they wanted to put them in prison because this was a threat to the religious and social order of the day to have a new king, to have Jesus coming in and uh, people giving allegiance to him. But we see in verse 17, but to stop, so they say we want to stop this spreading. And so they try to do everything they can to stop the disciples speaking. Um, so this is, what, this is the context of the, stories, the, the story. The disciples cannot not speak about Jesus. And the more that the authorities try and stop them, the more they seem to speak. And um, what do they say about them? There's three things from that verse. We're going to spend most of our time there. The early disciples were unschooled and ordinary men. They were courageous and they were friends of Jesus, or the friend phrase it uses, they had been with Jesus. So let's look at what, what kind of disciples could we be and we make if we just followed verse 13. Imagine if the, the city of Dublin said, you know those from Christ City Church, and they gave us that kind of recommendation or that kind of praise. So unschooled and ordinary. Now unschooled means they're not educated in any special way. You know, these were blue-collar people. They were fishermen. They were not professors at Jerusalem University. They weren't even students at the University of Jerusalem. They were fishermen. They weren't academically trained. They were just unschooled people. Secondly, they were ordinary, which kind of means common. They, they had no status in society. They weren't the politicians of the day. They were fishermen. 
Peter and John were fishermen. They were just your average Joe soap. They were ordinary. They're unimpressive. They had no influence. Now, I don't want to offend any of you, but they're just like you and me. Very ordinary and unimpressive. Isn't that how you feel in the big scheme of things? I know society says, you know, believe in yourself and where you can achieve your dreams and you can be anyone and you can change the world, but you can't. I mean, let's face it. We can't. Yeah. The odd Christian makes it to a place of prominence in society. Most Christians don't. True. Fact. Someone now and again ends up in the spotlight as a Christian because they're in politics or they have their sporting achievement or they made a load of money or they're in music or film or something else that puts them in. But most of us are just ordinary, unschooled nobodies that will make no ripple on society and history. And in 100 years, everyone would have forgotten about us. It's an encouraging sermon, isn't it? <laughs> so that's what, we, that's what the early church was like, just ordinary and unschooled. The Apostle Paul would later write to the Corinthian church, which was full of boasting about power and being impressive. And he would say, no, no, this is the way God wants it. He chooses the foolish and the weak, not the wise and the influential, because his plans are all about using the lowly and the despised of society, because then he receives glory, not us. But it gets worse, by the way. You're unschooled, you're ordinary, and also you're persecuted. That's the, that's the identity of the early Christians. That's who they were. Ordinary, unschooled, and persecuted. They didn't fit in, they're ostracized, they're seen as dangerous, what they believe is not just wrong but offensive. That's what's causing this stir. They want, everyone, they want them to shut up and put them in prison and all the rest. So, welcome to being a disciple of Jesus. Is this what you signed up for? Ordinary, unschooled, and despised. By the way, if any of you end up with political, financial, or cultural power, beware. From the teachings of the scriptures and the, the, the story of history, it's very easy to gain the whole world and you lose your soul. Very easy. It's very hard to maintain power and you know, success in this world and contain a credi- maintain a credible witness to Jesus. So if you're ordinary, unschooled, and despised, Jesus says in the Beatitude, rejoice, because they treated the prophets like you, and great is your reward in heaven. So it's not about this earth, it's about the next. So the first distinctive of the early disciples, they were ordinary, unschooled people. Secondly, they were courageous. Verse 13 again, just read it with me. They saw the courage That's what they saw when they looked at these early, unscored, ordinary, despised men and women. They saw courage. And why did they see courage? Because they saw people that had no fear. Absolutely no fear. And no fear of the authorities. There was not an ounce of the fear of man in these early disciples. They feared no one but God, that is. I just think verse 18 to 20 is remarkable. Then they called them in again. This is the authorities, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The disciples had one Lord Jesus, and they obeyed him only. Everyone else was subject to their true Lord. Jesus had said this, when he was training the disciples, all that time he spent with them, what did he say? Well, one of the things he said was this, 
to his disciples. The crowds were in the vicinity, so the crowds could hear, but he was training his disciples. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, and after that, do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. The disciples knew only to fear God, not man. God was the one with real, final, eternal power to destroy. If you've ever seen the Monty Python sketch where the, the, the knight is being absolutely dismembered, it's a very famous sketch, okay? It's an old sketch, a comedy, and as he's being dismembered, he just sort of is naive, he's completely oblivious to what's going on, and, and so his arms are cut off, and his legs are cut off, and he's about to die, and he says, tis a, tis a mere flesh wound, you know? And to the Christian, you can kill me, and it is but a mere flesh wound. I know the one who has the real power to destroy me, and you don't, even if you kill me. To be killed is mere flesh compared to what God can do. And yet the God who has the power to throw your soul and body into hell is the very God that knows when every sparrow falls to the ground and you're worth more than every sparrow. So even if you do fall to the ground and die, he's going to care for you because he knows every hair on your head. The disciples feared and revered God alone. They had courage and everyone around them could see they don't fear man, they fear God. And that courage showed itself in one remarkable attribute, which was you can't shut them up. They just kept talking about Jesus. Look at verse 12 for the kind of message they had. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, I want you to notice what they don't say and what the world around us would love us to say. They don't say... Perhaps salvation is found in Jesus. They don't say, in my opinion, salvation is found in Jesus. They tell it clearly, passionately, unashamedly, persuasively, that salvation is found in no other name. There's no other name under heaven which was given to mankind by which they can be saved. Now, they're not hotheads. They're not looking for a fight. They're not looking to boost their own ego. They're just telling people what they know to be true, that salvation is in Jesus. They were in prison for it. In the next chapter, they're beaten and flogged because of what they keep saying. The important point is this. They were crystal clear that the gospel is exclusive, which means if you're a Christian, you believe this, which means this cannot be true. Jesus is the only way, which means other ways can't be. And guess what? In the first century and in 21st century, that is a politically charged thing to do and could get you thrown in prison. They're not being unnecessarily aggressive. They're not trying to win an argument, prove a point, boost their own egos. They're polite throughout this. They, they, talk to, you know, they, they address the rulers in verse 8 as rulers. They keep honoring them in their positions. They are clear. But it's no different today. People would love you to be a Christian if you keep it to yourself. You won't have any problem in the workplace, at college, in the sports team, in your local community if everyone goes, oh, they're the Christians, but they never talk about it. If you keep your opinions to yourself, if you don't really mention who Jesus is, then you won't be persecuted because no one will be offended. But if you dare to share the message of Acts chapter 4.12, that there is no way you can be saved apart from in Jesus, you will be led like a lamb to the slaughter in 21st century Dublin. And they were led like lambs to the slaughter 
in the first century world too. People don't mind Jesus until they're told he's the only way of salvation. Exclusivity always offends. I might lose my friends. I might be cut out of the friendship groups. I might be tarnished with this reputation. You might. Who do you fear? You know, they always say your true character is revealed under pressure, or you might say your true allegiance is revealed under pressure. Well, what was the true character and allegiance of these early disciples? They feared only God. They were unbelievably courageous as a result, and you couldn't get them to shut up to say Jesus is the way of salvation. Let me make a few applications as we think about what this means for us. So first of all, I want you to notice there was no mission department in the early church. They didn't go, right, we're setting aside these people to go abroad or these people to go onto the streets or these, these are the people that do mission in our church. No. The Holy Spirit was for everyone, so talking about Jesus was for everyone. And it's like, what's, what, what's Christ City Church's mission? What, 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 what's your mission team? We, the church is our mission team. Everyone is called to be a witness. Everyone who's ordinary and unschooled like these guys here in Acts in, in chapter 4, just be honest and clear about who Jesus is when people ask you. It sounds easy, but as we know, it's not. We need courage. But there's no, you know, the, the whole church was a missionary department. Secondly, it was not an organized event, but a life that had been transformed that drew the crowds. You know, it's easy to say we need better programs, we need better advertisement, we need better slogans, we need better social media, we need better this, we need better that, we need better... No, no, no. Two things trigger this. A man was healed, sure. But Peter, they talk about his courage. Is Peter known in the Gospels as courageous? No, he's a coward. He can't even stand up to a servant girl, we're told, when Jesus is on trial, and he denies Jesus. He can't even maintain a clear witness in front of a servant girl. He crumbled, his character and allegiance was so weak. And yet, we say they saw his courage. What will bring people to hear about Jesus more than any advertising, program, event, branding, video, slogans, or any of that? They can all be used. I'm not despising them. But it's nothing like the power of a transformed life to get people hearing about Jesus. In preparing this talk, I read a, I was reading one of the, the, the commentaries, and he, he, he told a story of a, of a businessman called Joe who had been converted through, uh, through some kind, I don't know how, so he, he'd been led to Christ you know, at some point uh, by a Christian leader. And uh, the Christian leader had then flown back, he'd been on a visiting trip or something, and had flown back to where he, he belonged, you know, the city he was a part of in the USA. And, um, and Joe had gone on being a Christian. And he wrote to the Christian leader a year later, sort of saying, look, I've been trying to live for Jesus. I've been trying to align my, li- my life with the Bible and get things you know, straightened out. I need to get straightened out. And I've been trying to share him. And I wondered if you'd come and speak at a lunch event that I'm doing for my work colleagues. He worked in business. And the, in, in the book, the Christian leader was like, it was a pain. It's on the other side of the country. It's a busy schedule. It's just a silly lunch thing with his friends. Yeah. But anyway, he, he decided and he flew over to the, to the other side of, of the country and went to this lunch thing. And he said his plane was late and he was in a rush and it was all sort of going wrong. And he sort of was pushed into this room straight from the plane on the taxi. And he walked into 800 of Joe's friends. One year, a life transformed and the basic point of the mayor, this man has changed in the last year, and he said, you were going to help us understand why. Mm-hmm. 800 people in a year. Bring it home. I spoke at the Christian unions the last two weeks, the last week. I was privileged to speak at TCD on Monday on 
will God ruin my fun? And then at UCD on Tuesday, about why does God allow suffering? And by the way, they're spiritual receptive, the students. It's wonderful. But the thing I want to tell you about, the thing that captured me most was at the end of my Tuesday talk, you do, you do the talks twice on both days for different lunch hours on, on campus. And on the suffering talk I was doing at UCD, the room was packed. It was wonderful. People had been courageous and in inviting their friends. And uh, we had this amazing Q&A. I mean, when I say amazing, it was just great. The questions were coming. You know, people were genuinely interested. And, um, but I didn't get to speak to these three. There was a girl and two friends just on the front row here, and they just wouldn't, they didn't leave, and they were looking at me. So I thought they must have questions. So I went over, introduced myself, and chatted to them. And uh, they had some questions about suffering, and then we, like, I tried to help them, and we grappled on it, you know, grappled on the questions for a bit. And then I said, you know, like, why are you here? And, uh, and they said, oh, you know, Lizzie invited us. I said, oh, great, you know, why, why? Well, you know, we, we never met anyone like her. And, you know, she, 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 the way she explains her faith and who she is, and I said, oh, well, where is she? She's not here today. She's sick. So I said, you're here because Lizzie invited you, but she's not actually here, and you turned up anyway. And they went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were just hungry. I've never met Lizzie. I don't know Lizzie. I found out later that Lizzie was reading the Bible with one of our housemates. Isn't that wonderful? Someone going, I'm just going to speak about Jesus to the people around me. I don't know Lizzie, but I bet you she's unschooled and ordinary. But she's got courage, and she's opened her mouth, and she's invited her friends and they've come. The Christian leader that I read said, at that moment when he was, walked into Joe's lunch break with 800 people, at that moment I realized that all the evangelistic promotions, programs, and campaigns in the world are virtually worthless to motivate people to become Christians unless they see some ordinary person like Joe is finding a new way to live in Christ. The incontrovertible evidence of a changed life. It's not a missionary department. It's everyone on mission. It's not an event, it's a changed life that leads people to engage. Thirdly, this is key from the story. It's not just personal testimony, but a clear sharing of the gospel. The, the healing of the man and the transformation of Peter's own life is obviously the introduction to evangelism, but it's not evangelism. Testimony is telling people what Jesus has done for me in my experience. and that's, You could say it's part of evangelism, but evangelism... It's not what Jesus has done for me. Evangelism is telling what Jesus has done for everyone through Easter when he died and rose. And that is the message of 412 that is for all people to be saved by. Not your story of Jesus, that that's the way in. There must be a moment when you clearly say this is a message for everyone and you talk about those Easter events and how eternal salvation is in him. So it's important. Personal testimony is the, is the way in but a moment must come where we share the gospel. And finally, these men were not isolated but accountable. I think verse 23 is actually interesting. I'd never seen it until I, I read it this week or two weeks ago. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. And what did they do? They reported. Interesting word. So these weren't lone rangers out there just you know, swinging some punches evangelistically. They were together. Some were praying while some went out. There was a team atmosphere about it. And when they went back, they said, this is what happened, and we want to report to you. We've been working, we've been praying, we've been thinking. And, you, know, there, there wasn't, there, you want to be a disciple of this kind of courage, you can't be a lone ranger. You must recognize, I need people praying. I need to be able to come off the battle lines of evangelism and have my wounds bandaged by my brothers and sisters who pray so I can get back 
out. Christian community is vital. The normal human resources of friendship, support, prayer, and love are what fuel courage. It's not like I'm just a courageous person. No, I tap into all the normal resources I need. So, they were unschooled and ordinary men. They were courageous, and they were friends with Jesus. They took note they'd been with Jesus. Do you remember the amazing story of, in John chapter 4, of the woman at the well? She's at a well in the middle of the day because she is socially ostracized in society because she's had five husbands and the man she's living with now is not her husband. So she's spiritually and emotionally thirsty. She's living in a desert, but she's actually in a physical desert. It tells a parable. And she's living in shame. That's why she goes on her own in the middle of the day rather than with the other women. And uh, she's thirsty, thirsty for meaning, thirsty for truth, thirsty for satisfaction, and she can't find it. But she spends some time with Jesus. A few hours discussing eternal life, living water. And after their backwards and forwards in engagement and Jesus engages her head and her heart, she is transformed. Her life is transformed. And the story ends with her running back to the Samaritan village. She's not isolated. She's in community. She's not living in shame. She's telling everyone, you can know everything about me and I have no fear. A famous line, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. What has she ever done? Slept with lots and lots of men. She didn't care. My sin has been covered. I can tell anyone. I have no shame. So she's not living in isolation. She's back in community. She's not living in shame. She's been set free by forgiveness. And finally, she's not spiritually thirsty. She's become full. She's become a, a well of living water started in her that's now flowing over to others as she shares the gospel. And we have the first account of a revival in the, in the gospels, and it's by a Samaritan woman. Why was she transformed? Where did the courage and freedom come from? What drove out her fear of man? What got her tongue wagging? Speaking of Jesus, they took note that they'd been with Jesus. Time with Jesus, encountering Jesus for yourself, means you have a a flow of living water that comes out of you. It's the same when you read the Gospels. Time and time again, Jesus heals someone or forgives someone or in some way brings them back into community. And he often says to them, please don't go and tell anyone about this. And he's doing that because he doesn't want people to think he's just some miracle maker, but he wants them to understand the cost of being a Christian, you know, not just flock to him for miracles. But they can't help speaking about their encounter with Jesus like these early disciples can't. Think about Peter again. What made the difference? What took him from being a coward to the enemies going, look at his courage? Well, two things we know from the story. After he denied Jesus in, on, when Jesus was you know, going for trial, uh, afterwards, when Jesus was raised, he spent time with Jesus on the beach. Do you remember? John 21. And Jesus said, you love me. And he, he got to reaffirm his love for Jesus. And he, in Peter's failure, he experienced amazing grace as he was recommissioned again to go and feed the sheep. So he experienced fresh grace in his failure. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came into him and filled him, and he had a new power. So he experienced fresh grace, and he experienced fresh power. Do you remember Peter's great claim beforehand? If all fall away, I'm never going to fall away, as if he could do it in his own strength. And he did fail. And then he had fresh grace and a fresh power through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and suddenly the early church enemies are going, look at his courage. And that's what the Holy Spirit can do to you. He goes, I could never be courageous. Peter couldn't be. In fact, those claims of going, I can be so courageous will only mean you have a greater fall when it happens. 
But to say to Jesus, I'm often a coward, and he comes to you and says, do you love me? And you go, yeah, I do. Help me. And then he says, I'll give you my spirit. When Jesus was training his disciples for his departure, he said this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. An orphan is abandoned. An orphan is alone. An orphan has to fend for themselves in a hostile world. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to leave you like that. I'm going to come to you. Well, how did Jesus come to his disciples? He sent the Spirit. That the presence of Jesus could be real in every moment. You see, Jesus can only be in one place at one time. But if he goes and sends a Spirit, then we can have a real encounter with Jesus every moment of every day. So earlier, he, two verses earlier, he'd said, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, another defender, another counselor to be with you forever. And a few lo- verses later he says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives you. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. Why not? Why shouldn't their hearts be troubled? Why shouldn't they be afraid? Why are they not as orphans? Why can they have peace? Because the Spirit is coming. And the Spirit will make Jesus real to us. Like he was real to Peter on the beach. Fresh grace. Fresh power. Look at verse 8. They say in verse 7, By what power or what name did you do this? Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. The Spirit fills so we can speak. Jesus, when he was training his disciples, said this to them. Oh, and at the end of this, of this act, we haven't had a chance to read the whole chapter, but I referenced this first last week. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what is the sign? They spoke. The Spirit fills so we can speak. We can say something of Jesus. When Jesus was training his disciples, he said, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves and what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Katie, who's the UCUI worker at TCD, and I were just having a conversation just before the service. And I, I remember last year when I was at the TCD event and I was speaking on the atrocities of the church in history. And, you know, and someone brought up the issue of like the genocides and God's commanding to, to kill people in the Old Testament in front of this you know, big group at TCD. And I remember just the Spirit gave me the words. And, it, and I remember I had to go home and write it down. I was so impressed with my answer. You know? But I was like, I, that was the one question I thought, how am I going to answer if someone says, well, what, what about when God says to this? And I remember just the Spirit giving words. And I've known it on a Friday afternoon at work. I remember when it happened with the same-sex marriage referendum, and it's happened even more recently. And people, you know, they come and target me on the pastor at work, and they're, they're good. They're, they're, you know, they're not out to have it get me nasty, but they do want to try and sort of poke holes. And when I'm relying on my strength, I generally do a bad job. But when I say, "Lord, help me," the Spirit gives me words or questions that open it up into a real conversation. The Holy Spirit enables us to speak and defend our faith. The reason Christianity did and has spread across the globe is because disciples speak about Jesus, who he is, what he has done for them. They were filled with the Spirit, so they spoke boldly. Christianity grows because disciples talk. Stop disciples talking and you stop the growing. What is remarkable is that every method to stop these disciples in the first century was tried, and the more they tried, the louder they got. Why? 
because Jesus was so real to them. Verse 20, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. John chapter 4, the woman at the well, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. I don't know, Lizzie. Come just listen to a talk. I've been trying to help you understand it. And their three friends turn out when she's not even there. The Holy Spirit enables us to speak because Jesus has become so real to us. John Stott said this, nothing shuts the mouth, seals the lips, ties the tongue like the poverty of our own spiritual experience. These disciples had been with Jesus. They were full. They were streams of living water. It was flowing out of them. They knew Jesus. And as a result, they spoke. By the way, our life groups, which we just advertise, are our mechanism in Christ City Church to help us to grow in freedom and courage and overcome the fear of man that we all feel, we're all tempted to give into, and learn together to have the prayer and support to say, no, I want to speak of Jesus. Let me end with this, with a few questions. What does the passage tell us about the early disciples? They were courageous and they spoke. And yet, don't we like, find ourselves like Peter at the trial of Jesus? We can't even stand up to some seemingly insignificant person that we're followers of Christ and speak about him. Why can't we speak? Because we fear man more than we fear God. We're scared of the consequences. We don't want to lose the friendships. We don't want to face the hostility. What was Jesus doing as Peter denied him? He was standing up for every single person throughout history that would be saved. He was facing hostility. He was being led like a lamb to the slaughter for Peter, for the cowards, for you and I. And he was going to take on the full consequences of hostility, not just human, but eternal, as he faced the consequences of our sin and the judgment it deserved. And why did he do it? Because he wanted to protect us. He wanted to say, you can know for certain that I will protect you. You can know for certain that you're, you're secure. You can know for certain that you're loved. You, know, you can know for certain that whatever's happening, I haven't abandoned you. So to the extent that we know what Jesus has done for us and how when we were cowards, he was brave for us, when we failed, he succeeded, is to the extent we'll be released from the fear of man and be able to share. The early disciples and I just left one verse. They had this amazing prayer afterwards. I left one verse there in verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea. Do you notice that? Sovereign Lord. They're being persecuted. They're being put in prison. They're being beaten. They go, God, you've abandoned. No, sovereign Lord, you made everything. You're in charge of history. No one can stop you. Their response to being flogged, persecuted, despised, is to go, Sovereign Lord, you're in charge here. And we haven't had, ch- and in the next verses, they're going, even when they try to kill your servant Jesus, they were only doing what your will had decided beforehand should happen. This is the Sovereign Lord. When you know that the God of the universe is both sovereign and loving, it releases you from the fear of man. No matter how big the army, now how lofty the throne, you cannot be frightened because our God is sovereign. And our God is loving, and our God is for me. Chrysostom, the early church father, was on trial for his life. The emperor said, we will banish you. 
And Chrysostom is reputed to have replied, you cannot banish me for the whole world is my father's home. Well then, we will execute you, said the emperor. You cannot, he replied. My life is hid with Christ. Well then, we'll dispossess you of your estate. You cannot, he said. I have not got any. All my treasure is in heaven. Well then, we'll put you into solitary confinement, said the emperor. You cannot, for I have a divine friend from whom you can never separate me. I defy you. There is nothing you can do to hurt me. Such is the defiance of Christians who know that their God is loving and their God is sovereign and their God has made them eternally secure in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit hasn't changed one iota throughout the centuries. He's God. He's unchanging. And he's here today to fill you in the same way that he filled those early disciples so they would speak and that we might speak, to empower you, to fill you, to enable you, to help you, that when you feel like a coward like Peter, when you are a coward like Peter, to have fresh grace, fresh power, fresh commissioning, and you go again. A little boy once asked a sailor, what is the wind? I don't really understand it, the sailor replied, but I can hoist a sail. Today I encourage you, in your lives, just say, Lord, I'm hoisting a sail, I'm saying, I'm yours, fill me. Breathe on me. Blow your wind to empower me that I might speak and be a witness, that I might spend time with Jesus and a spring of living water might flow. And I would just, I'd say with the disciples in Acts chapter 420, I cannot help but speak. Do you want to stand? I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing to finish. Father, we thank you for these early disciples, these early Christians. They're so courageous. And I pray that uh, now as we just take a few moments to respond in song and to think about ourselves, that we would know that your Holy Spirit is here today to empower us afresh. Just, Just take a moment just to be quiet. And where you are, you can ask the Spirit to give you power to speak and not to be silent for Jesus. Pray, Holy Spirit, even as we finish up today, that you would come and fill us and empower us. Remind us again of fresh grace where we have failed you and not stood up for you and not spoken about you. Not believe the promise that you would give us what we need to say. And we pray, Holy Spirit, give us that fresh power, power to witness, power to be unashamed because Jesus would be so real to us that we wouldn't fear man but you. I just want to pray for people before I finish and we sing. And I'm just going to ask for a moment of vulnerability from you that you might just, as a way of receiving, just put out your hands and say, oh, I want that. I need that. And you, just where you are now. And, and even if someone has their eyes open and sees you do it, so what? So what? That's the point, right? So what? So if you're here today and you want courage to speak, put your hands out. If you're here today and you want courage, you need fresh grace because you know you haven't spoken, put your hands out and say, God, give me that fresh grace. If you know there's a friendship circle where you find it really hard to speak about Jesus, put your hands out and say, God, help me open my mouth the next time I get a chance. 
And if you're here today and you don't know salvation that's in Jesus, put your hands out. Receive eternal life, forgiveness of sins now. Why not? What's stopping you? And if, if you do want to do that, I'm going to pray and I'd love you to come and make yourself known at the end. But let's keep your hands out there and I'm going to pray for us all and for anyone who wants to receive Jesus for the first time. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gift of your Spirit, the advocate who comes and makes Jesus real to us, that gives us an ex- spiritual experience which looses our tongues to speak. Fill us now. Fill every person here who's saying, I'm putting a sail up. I'm putting my hand up. I'm putting a sail up to say, fill me. Blow. We kind of understand the work of the Spirit. It's like the wind, Jesus said, but we know when we feel its effects in our lives. So Holy Spirit, come now and blow on us. Breathe on us, as Jesus said. I pray for courage, Lord, for those who know they're currently silent in friendship groups where they need to start speaking. Lord, this week, give them a moment to share and may they open their mouths and even if they're mocked, may they go home rejoicing like the early disciples when they were mocked. And Lord, as I experience on TCD and UCD campuses a spiritual hunger, we pray for our friends and our family, our colleagues, those in our communities that don't know you, we pray give that spiritual hunger to them that we might have beautiful feet and go and tell them something of you. And Lord, for any here today who don't know you, but know that they need to know you and get right. Lord, help them now to turn from their sin, turn from having themselves as king of their lives and turn to you as their Lord and their sovereign king, the loving God that you are, that they would turn and place their trust and their hopes and their eternity in you. Thank you that you promised that if we believed in you, we'd be given forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit and eternal life. And I pray they would know peace as they know that is granted to them through their faith. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.